0: This is Labor Wave Radio. Labor Wave Radio is an independent podcast sustained by our subscribers to our Patreon. So if you enjoy our show and you enjoy the content that comes out bi-weekly, please become a patron. Based on your membership tier, you'll receive gifts, including stickers and zines and original made t-shirts, as well as early access to our content. You can also support us by following us on various podcast platforms and social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And drop us a line at laborwavenews at gmail.com. In this episode, we speak with Hamilton Nolan, a labor reporter for In These Times, about the article Get Rid of No Strike Clauses and Stop Begging, which you can find at com. You can read this and more from Hamilton Nolan by following him on his Twitter and regularly checking out In These Times. I highly recommend that you read the full article that serves as the basis of our conversation on getting rid of no-strike clauses. Hamilton Nolan, welcome to Labor Wave Radio.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You recently wrote, uh, somebody described it to me as a polemic, I guess that's technically what it is, and for In These Times, called Get Rid of No-Strike Clauses and Stop Begging. I like these titles because you know right off the bat exactly what the argument entailed is going to be. So I thought just uh, by way of beginning, could you just maybe explain for our listeners that don't know, like, what are no-strike clauses and, and why are they so detrimental to working class power?
1: No-strike clause, um, for anyone who's ever been in a union or, or worked under a union contract, um, it's extremely likely that you have had a no strike clause in that contract um, because they have become fairly standard parts of, of just about every union contract uh, in America today. And I, I shouldn't say that there are union contracts that don't have no strike clauses, but they're very, very standard in a, in a large number of industries and with a large number of unions. Essentially a no strike clause says that for the period of the contract, so if you sign a three-year union contract for the period of that contract, you will not strike. It's essentially viewed as a trade, in the sense that the company is buying labor peace. I mean, that is that is sort of the dynamic that that's been set up um, in union negotiations in all types of industries for you know more than half a century now. And and the idea is that, you know, the company will basically pay you uh, for the guarantee that you are not going to go on strike for the next three years. You know, the effect that it has, among among many other things, is it essentially robs workers of the most powerful tool that they have, which is the strike. You know, the strike is, at its core, is just the control over your own labor. Um, it's the right to withhold your own work. and when you sign that right away in a union contract, even though you may be receiving some material benefits for it, you're giving away your strongest bargaining chip. So anything that comes up at work during the course of that contract, you don't have your strongest tool to fight it.
0: And this hasn't always been standard. Like you were saying, not every single union collective bargaining agreement has a no strike clause, but I don't know if I were to guess, it'd probably be like what ninety five percent at least, if not more. Probably do at least in this country. But like, when did this become the norm?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't want to pose a labor historian, but there's a there's there's a famous thing called the Treaty of Detroit, which was like uh, when the UAW was an extremely powerful union uh, back in in the middle of the twentieth century. You know, kind of at the height of their power, and. Um, they sort of they sort of came to an agreement with the auto manufacturers that that sort of set up this dynamic. You know, uh, the auto manufacturers were tired of having to deal with strikes and all the unrest, and they were making a lot of money. And you know, they essentially struck this deal with the union that that set up the dynamic that still persists to this day. Which is like, we're going to pay you. <laughs> we will allow the workers to share in the prosperity of the company, which is good right? It's, it's, that's not something that anybody would argue against. But in return for that, we're buying labor peace, and, and you're going to forfeit your right to strike. I think one of the flaws with the, with the whole bargain is that, you know, what is a company really buying with a union contract? I mean, the idea that a company is buying labor peace, I think is wrong. That's not really what a union contract is buying. A union contract is buying the work, a union contract is buying the work of your workers, and it's it's just simply a a fair set of terms for people to work for you and I think that's how a union contract should be regarded to go beyond that and say on top of that, you will forfeit your right to exercise labor power I think is I think we've given up too much in that bargain you know and and I've personally had the experience and I'm sure a lot of people have had the experience um, who've been in unions where if you work for a bad boss or you work for a, a vindictive company or you work for a company that in any way is trying to extract things from the workers, even during the course of a union contract, you find really quickly that when you have that no strike clause, uh, if the company's really trying to play hardball, you don't have any tool that is strong enough to stand up to the company. You know, you end up in this box where you're signing these three-year contracts. And so there's a very narrow window during the time you negotiate a contract when you can like threaten to strike and, and strikes are all built around signing a contract as the, as the purpose of the strike. But you don't have the ability to strike to win anything else on the job, you know, and, and, Anybody who works for a living knows, you know, stuff doesn't just happen once every three years at work. I mean, there's problems at work constantly, and you know, unions can have labor management committees, and you can have a dialogue with the company, and all that stuff can be in union contracts, and that's that's all well and good, you know, and and hopefully those things will be enough to deal with problems that come up. But when companies want to fight, when companies don't like the union, when companies want to play hardball, and they want to be Real cutthroat capitalists—that um, stuff won't cut it, and and you need the power to control your own labor. And by forfeiting that, as a matter of course, it, you know, in signing every union contract, we've effectively bargained away our most powerful tool.
0: One of the ways that I think you can kind of demonstrate how powerful strikes are is how afraid bosses are of strikes. Like anybody that's tried to organize a union, you know, one of the first things you hear in terms of the anti union campaign coming from the employer is unions are just gonna make you go out on strike. Which for me as like a labor organizer, I'm always like, Yeah, right, I wish it would just be so fucking easy to just call all these damn strikes and have them all the time. But that's like the first thing they say, other than like they just want your dues, they'll say unions just make workers go out on strike. So clearly they are very afraid of this idea and they use it as like a scare tactic to like make workers afraid of unions. And I think just that alone just demonstrates like employers clearly understand that this is the weapon that we have and they want to make it like so taboo and scary to ever even think of the notion of striking. I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And it's it's they would definitely like to make it a taboo. And, you know, It's really not that complicated. And when you, you know, I'm sure as an organizer, when you talk to people about unions, even people that don't have any background in unions or maybe don't know that much about it. I mean, it's really, there's a lot of common sense involved in this, you know, which is that the company and the boss, no matter how big and strong they are and how scary they are and how rich they are and whether it's Amazon and they're super powerful, blah, blah, no matter who they are, if you don't do the work, There's no business, you know, like at the end of the day, no matter what the company is, if y'all don't do the work, they don't have a business. They're not making money. There is no business, you know, so that is the fundamental building block of all labor power that that unions have, you know, is the ability to control your own labor. And of course, companies want you to sign that away. Like, (laughs) of course, they want a clause in the contract that says you're not gonna do that because that is the one thing, you know, every other, you know, I'm I'm sure you've seen like the escalation chart, you know, where it's like the first step is like, you know, we're wearing buttons, we're wearing t-shirts to work, and then we do a petition and da-da-da-da-da. And the strike is like the last step on the escalation chart, you know, every step below the strike, it's possible for a company to ignore if they want to. You know, you can make it uncomfortable for them you can make them get bad PR, you can maybe bring some bad press to them, you know, but if they're determined to, and they really want to be hardcore, they can ignore every step on that escalation chart. But when you get to the strike, you've turned off the business, there's no business for that company, you know, and at that point, they are forced to deal with you if they want to continue to exist. Um, it's just common sense. And so like, You know, everybody should realize um, when they get in a union, and and you know, I've heard the the thing that you're talking about, where you know the strike is really waved around as like a scary, a scary prospect, Um, and it is a scary prospect. I mean, nobody should nobody should pose as if strikes are not a serious serious thing for for workers to do. You know, but at the same time, people should people should enjoy the idea that they have that right in their pocket. You know that. Because that is the one bargaining chip that an average working person can hold against the most powerful company in the world that that company is bound to respect. I think we should think of it like that. You know, everything proceeds from the ability to strike. That doesn't mean that we want to go on strike. I mean, nobody wants to go on strike. Workers don't want to go on strike. The company like credibly threaten the company that we will go on strike is what is going to get you everything that you want. And so again, like the, you know, when you go into negotiated union contract today, if you, if you propose to the management attorney on the other side that you don't want to know strike contracts, that's viewed as like a non-starter as if you're not being serious. Right. I mean, that's viewed as like something that has to be in the contract that's non negotiable. And that's the kind of dynamic that we need to break out of. And it's going to take um, I, really what it's going to take is people who are willing to go on strike to win their own right to strike, which is not easy. Right. I mean, it's it's hard to ask uh, regular a lot of regular working people to to go on strike for this kind of abstract seeming thing that is not like money in your pocket. You know, it's just like a, an abstract right. But if we don't ultimately start trying to win this back and to change the just to to be able to break that expectation that a no strike clause has to be in the contract you know it's not that every every union shop in america doesn't have to go on strike for this you know what we have to do is to find some places that will fight hard enough to get that out of their contract that then you can turn around and be like look they don't have a no strike clause The the sky didn't fall, you know, the company didn't go out of business, like the world didn't burn down, and get to the point when it's no longer a precedent that has to be respected in every negotiation.
0: Well, and like you're saying, it's definitely gonna be a big challenge, a huge hill to climb to get to this point. But it's not even just the employers that make it such a challenge. A lot of union staffers, the conventional wisdom, like you're saying, on the employer side and the employer labor negotiators, is no strike clauses without them, it's a non-starter. Well, that's often the case. True for staffers, for folks that have been doing, you know, labor organizing or representation for decades and decades, these things are seen as non-starters for them too. Um, I was going to share with you actually one firsthand experience with this when I was uh, was a staffer and I was at a union convention for the state federation of all the members. So I was just working for a local and my job at that moment was just to help them get ready to like learn Robert's rules of orders. This is what convention looks like. This is how you to be prepared for passing a resolution, making amendments and all that. And I'm not supposed to have any more role in that because I'm a fucking staffer. Like I should shut up At convention and let the members vote on things. Now, we had one resolution that came through from one of the locals that was, it was kind of lukewarm, to be honest, but it was about no strike clauses. And all it was, was calling for every local to go through some, you know, mandatory classes on the history of strikes and the Wagner Act, you know, just to learn about them. And then it said something vaguely along the lines of, um, encourage locals to negotiate these things out of their contracts. Didn't say like, we demand that this happens. The resolution wasn't worded like that, but it was like kind of a soft resolution trying to just bring attention to no strike causes and like educate members on possibilities outside of that. Now in the room when they're negotiating or when they're proceeding with this resolution and making amendments and stuff, one of the top staff officials from the union, I'm not going to say the union or anything, but person from the national office somehow knew about this thing and fucking showed up in the room, interrupted the proceedings, took over the chair's responsibilities, and went on like a thirty-minute lecture, persuading people about how terrible this resolution was. It was like wow. the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen, you know. Wow. So, so what's yeah. going on with that? Like <laughs> why, why is that the case? Too. Yeah,
1: I mean yeah you know I think it's such an important point that you bring up, and you've you've seen it from the inside as a union staffer i mean, and i would I would preface it by saying like I love union staffers, and you know you most ninety nine percent of the union staffers that I meet are like the most the most true believers in the labor movement, you know and but at the same time, like if you're a union member, you have to understand that that staffer you know, a union staffer can't tell you to break the contract, right? Like, they can't tell you to go on a Wildcat strike. They can't tell you to, you know, they're they're boxed in to a certain extent by, you know, agreeing to be on the staff, right? And like you're talking about, like, you can't stand up and necessarily say everything that you think because you have obligations as a staff member. And what tends to happen a lot of times, I think, is that members don't necessarily you know, have a great depth of knowledge about labor law and all this stuff, you know, so they they lean on the union staffer, they lean on the advice of the union staff, and the union staff is is almost obligated by precedent to, to go down this path and to, to follow this precedent of like, here's what we do, every contract has a no strike clause. And so there's, there's no part in that cycle where you can break out of it, you know, and, uh, you know, it's almost like we need like, an education campaign maybe everybody in the world will listen to your podcast and, and and this will be it but like we need this on like on like on like a million uh, you know a million scale because members right union members have to be the ones to drive changes like this because once they become institutionalized which no strike clauses have been institutionalized for decades now that the institution is not going to change them they're just not you know and like The labor lawyer is not going to change it because the labor lawyer has done a thousand contracts before and they're all like this. It's like any 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 radical change. I mean, it ain't going to come from institution. It has to come from union members. And so anybody who's a union member in any union who happens to (laughs) to agree with what we're talking about here and like care about this issue and grasp why this is important. To go in and be the voice um, inside your union, saying we need to, we need to change this, you know, because the change has to come from the grassroots. I mean, unfortunately, in a sense, like it would be easier if it could come from the top down, but it's very hard to think of leaders of major labor unions who are going to, like, lead the charge to break out of this cycle and and go around and recruit people to go on strike. I mean, they operate in a system as it exists. And if you want to change it, we have to lead that charge. So, you know, again, anybody who's a union member, I mean, start talking to the people in your union about about, you know, this conversation that we're having right here. Why is this important? Like, what does this mean to us? What does this cost us? You know, what does this no-strike clause cost us? Because what I saw was my the first union contract that I worked under at Gawker Media, we didn't have a no-strike clause. And while we were working under that first three-year contract, every time some shit happened, they knew that we would walk out. And we would have walked out. And so as a result of them knowing that we would walk out over problems that arose in the workplace, management would always come to the table and they would always negotiate with us over these things and negotiate in a meaningful way. And we won significant concessions over layoffs and, you know, buyouts and like really like significant financial concessions that we would not have won only because they knew that we would walk out because we didn't have a no strike clause. And so that was the first contract. And then when we signed the second contract, we did sign a no-strike clause because of the same, like, you have to have it kind of thing. Like, they hired a more expensive lawyer. And as soon as we had that no-strike clause, what happened was all the same, you know, bad stuff continued to happen at work. That didn't change, right? There was still a crisis every year. The only thing that changed was we no longer had the ability to walk out. And because we didn't have the ability to walk out, management was essentially like, "Fuck you guys," you know. Like, <laughs> if it's not written in the contract, then we don't care. Like, take your take your complaint in somewhere else. And it was such a uh, a visible illustration of like having that power and then not having that power and seeing how much it costs you, you know.
0: Well, and like you wrote in the article, when you have those clauses in the contract, it is near impossible to then get them out in subsequent contracts. Did you all try subsequently to negotiate against those prior (laughs) terms? Did that ever happen or was it just not even brought up?
1: You know, I'm, I'm trying to uh, talk to people about that here and there. I was laid off under, (laughs) under, before the second contract concluded, I got laid off from that company. So um, I'm no longer, I'm no longer there and I can't um, harangue people about this, you know, I really do think that it's important to, um, for unions, like I'm in the Writers Guild, whatever union you're in, I mean, we, we recognize that some places this is going to be a harder ask than others, right? Like for places that are really, people are kind of tenuous and just hanging on and it's hard to ask them to strike for abstract right. But I think that unions can step back and say, this is a project we want to pursue and look at all the contracts you have and say, where are the spots, you know, like we can be strategic about it and say, where are the shops where the people a might be willing to fight for this, you know, and b like, they have the pressure points that we could use and where we might be able to actually pull this off and then like identify those places and talk to those people. And I mean, it has to be a campaign, right? This is, this is going to be a years long campaign, unless there's a major legislative change that, Outlaws no strike clauses, which I I wouldn't hold my breath for anytime soon. So,
0: right, no, the said, arena is always restricting the strikes.
1: Yeah, I mean, this isn't even in the pro act. So, like, but um, yeah, I mean, but yeah, like, just just to start, I mean, let's start down the road. Let's start looking. Let's start planning. Let's start trying to make this a priority.
0: I do agree with what you're saying to your assessment that probably you have to find some key strategic contracts to focus on to do this because i in my previous negotiating experience went through a couple of different rounds where members did try to actually not get rid of their no strike clause but even just modify it slightly to allow it to be less restrictive and even that was like it was quite an or- it was quite a scene watching uh management respond and react to even modifying sentences in the no strike clause like they were totally <laughs> freaked the fuck out yeah. about it, and it went nowhere and you can't really do much about it because it's not something that you can easily just strike over then.
1: I mean, those, those high priced, uh, management attorneys, you know, their job is not rocket science at the end of the day. Like these guys are getting paid like $900 an hour to do a job that is not that hard. And like <laughs> one of the, one of the only material things that they can bring out of that is to be like, Hey, they don't have the right to strike, you know? So it's, it ain't going to be easy and management is not going to give up any of that without a fight, you know? And so I, again, like, it's going to have to be something that people are willing to, the same way people are willing to go on strike over wages or healthcare, you know, it has to be that, that level of commitment, you know, among the whole unit to say like, this is this important to us. I mean, we, on principle, we want to retain this right. It's not going to be easy, but for the people that could pull it off, I think, I think they're kind of heroic because they're the ones who are going to, who are going to be able to establish the new precedent going forward that, you know, this is not, uh, this is not going to be an expectation in contracts. You know, you're not going to, you're not buying quote unquote labor peace. You're buying our work. You know, you don't own us.
0: Now it does seem to me, I don't know if your impression is the same or shared on this, but, It seems to me that there is more common understanding around this. Like, this is becoming more popular of a call to action to get rid of no strike clauses. People are seeming within organized labor are seeming to acknowledge how limited our power really is with these kind of standard contracts. I think that's even different than like five years ago. And like, I know I wanted to return to something you were saying earlier because you were saying it needs to really come from like the grassroots up and the rank and file up. Not top down, but I did happen to see, you know, with your article, it was getting pretty good reception, at least online, and amongst the people that received it positively was Sarah Nelson, who a lot of insiders seem to believe will probably become the president of the AFL CIO, at least has a good shot at it. Uh, And she tweeted it saying that she co-signed it. So, what what do you think about that? Like, what is that, and what are the implications behind it? Even people like Sarah Nelson starting to say this is actually the way forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely take it as a good sign. I think, um, you know, there's the AFLCO is going to have a a election next year for new leadership. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it feels to me like a little bit of a watershed moment, you know, in that there's, there is, as you say, like, there's, there's a lot of energy in the labor movement today. I mean, it feels like, probably more energy in the labor movement today than there has been in, in decades. And also more unions are more popular than they have been in decades, you know, and we know that from, from polling. I mean, that's a fact. So like, there's so much potential for the labor movement to break out of this decline that it's been going through for, for, you know, ever since the fifties. I mean, it's, it's really been a, a downhill, a slow managed decline. Of the labor movement, and and this is you know, it's not a new thing that people have been talking about. This obviously, I mean, every generation of leadership in the labor movement has some conversation about can we turn around? Can we turn around? But like, when are you going to turn around? I mean, we have to be we have to be brutally honest when we have these conversations, right? I mean, I think a lot of the times um, in the union world the tendency can be to like, we always want to, we always want to clap for ourselves and and pat ourselves on the back. And that's like, that's great. I mean, and people should be applauded because there's a, there's a million people doing great things. But at the same time, if if you want to talk about the labor movement in America, you know, we have to be brutally honest about the fact that we're union density is horrible. It's, it's verging on single digits, you know, I mean, organized labor is not a force to match capital, which is what it, Fundamentally is supposed to be. And so we need to have very honest conversations about how to turn that around. You know, and part of part of that honest conversation is saying we need institutions like the AFL CIO to, to be powerful and to be committed to not only new organizing and building numbers in the labor movement, but also harnessing the power of those numbers, you know, and and breaking out of this idea that. We're just going to be partners to uh, big companies. I mean, we've tried it, right? We've tried it for a half century, and look where we are. That's that's the most compelling uh, argument for for all this. I mean, so you know, I don't care. I don't care like what people's electoral politics is, or or you know, red or blue. Like, if you believe in the labor movement and you believe like fundamentally that working people should have an equal amount of power as capital. You have to be a radical in a sense, because, you know, when you look at where we are, we're so far down the bottom of that hole that we need a radical change. And so, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a I'll believe it when I see it type thing. But I do think that it's it's encouraging that um, these things are being talked about at at the high levels of, of the union movement. You know, it's not just, there's always been lefties right in the labor movement who have, who have said radical shit. But I think today you do see um, union leaders, at least having a discussion about this issue. I mean, there's a, you know, some union leaders more than others, obviously, but there, there are some bright spots. So we'll see what happens, man.
0: I am curious just to hear since the article is about what, mon- one month now that it's, since it's been published from my bubble, you know, I'm definitely in a bubble. It seemed like it was really well received, but I'm just kind of curious to hear from you, like how, how has the reception been to the article? Have you gotten any like particular pushback and, and if so, from where?
1: You know, I haven't gotten pushback. I mean, it's, uh, Although, again, like, you know, it's it's one thing for me to write an article about. it; It's another thing for a union leader to say it or or a union to go on strike for it. You know, those are the real kind of material tests of like when this stuff can happen. I mean, but, you know, another thing is like you can look at um, a chart of how many strikes there are each year in America. Right. Like that the, those charts exist. And you'll see that just the same way that union density itself has declined, you know, the number of strikes has has declined to like almost nothing. I mean, there are extru- there are very, very few big strikes every year in America. I mean, very few. Like it's, a you know, and, and when, when you talk about like after World War II and the height of union power, there was like thousands mm-hmm. <laughs> of mm-hmm. strikes. I mean, strikes were a very common thing in America, you know and today they're very rare. I mean very like you can almost count on your fingers the number of big strikes in the whole country in a year, right? So like that's another that's another like important part of the decline of the labor movement is that people don't see don't see us exercise in power and all of this is like a vicious cycle that feeds each other, right? Regular people walking around the world they don't see any strikes, so they don't ever have an experience of seeing like, hey, here's, here's what a union does. And here's how a union wins things. And here's how a union gets power for regular people. They don't have that experience. So they don't get turned on to unions. They don't think about unions. They don't know how unions can be powerful. And it all feeds like that downward cycle. So again, like, you know, uh, I'm glad people are talking about it. And I really do think that like, The same way, you know, I think I really think the biggest issue for unions in America is new organizing and that we just have to have more union members. But, you know, right along with that is that we need more strikes. And that's kind of a weird thing to say, because strikes are so kind of a brutal thing. And they're, you know, they can really be tough for people and they can be economically harmful and they're not easy and all that stuff, you know, but we need that chart to start going up. Uh, that's that's going to be like an indicator that the power of the labor movement is coming back to.
0: Well, I want to bring us to a conclusion, but particularly on what you were just saying about new organizing. The cynic in me, I don't even know if this is cynical. I think this is just like kind of, like you're saying, this being brutally honest is, I don't see this happening within the existing framework of mainstream unions. Like, I do not see like AFL-CIO styled unions ever breaking out of this mold. And you kind of detailed a lot of the, the rationale for me believing that. And I've been inside these things and I just, I get more and more cynical by the day with how institutionalized these have become. Not that there's not like good staffers, great members and all that. There's plenty of lefties and radicals. Almost every organizer I meet is a communist. Like that's just how it is, <laughs> but it just doesn't matter. It's because it's been so institutionalized for many, many decades. Now, that's the cynic in me, but I think that there's also something still like the silver lining there is that 90% of the (laughs) workforce roughly is non-unionized, and there's a lot of space and terrain for new unions. And I wonder what you think about this claim that I'm about to make is that I think to break out of the no-strike standardization of collective bargaining, as you're talking about, and do it through practice, people actually striking for that right. I think it's not only going to come from new organizing. I feel like it's going to come from unions in a different mold. Like unions that are just like not even practicing the same style of like business union or mainstream unionism whatever you want to call it today. I think that 90% of the workforce is going to have to be doing a, a militant type of unionism that currently today is not being practiced it, for the most part. There are examples of it. So I wonder what you think of that. Is there any possibility that the AFL-CIO or SCIU or whatever is actually gonna do anything on this front or is it all gonna come from these new unions?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I agree with you to a certain extent. I'm maybe a little more optimistic than you. And it's funny because the, <laughs> there's no there's nobody more cynical in the labor movement than people who have worked inside unions, you know, <laughs> which is which is probably actually a very bad sign because they know better than anybody. So um that's I think you're I think you're in a common position. I will say like I mean, clearly labor law is broken in America, right? Clearly the field is tilted against unions for reasons that we don't have to like enumerate here, but you know, something like the PRO Act, if something like the PRO Act were to pass, which it's not about to, but (laughs) maybe if you know, you can imagine a scenario where it might pass in the quasi near future, not this term, but sometime. And you know, if we rewrote labor law in America to not be so horrible, I can imagine. You know, with with new leadership in a lot of the big unions, um, I frankly, you know, frankly, a lot of the biggest union leaders in America are not very inspiring right now. But again, like as I'm sure you know, like the lower down you go in the labor movement, the more inspiring the people are, and then the higher up you go, the less inspiring they are. In a lot of cases, not always. I do think that there's there is a path there, you know, and. There's things like sect- sectoral bargaining. You know, you can think of a design of sectoral bargaining that would be more pro-worker and not so terrible. All these things are very, you know, up in the air and depend on a lot of, of politics. So I I do agree with you that until we get to that place, and I hope we do get to that place. Yes, I think that it's. There's no doubt that it's going to have to be other forms. And I mean, even things like worker centers and. You know that are that have an easier time just harnessing the energy that people have. That can't that unions just, you know, they're in too much of a box to to capture that energy in a meaningful way. You know, I think yes, you're right. The reality is like that. What people call alt labor is gonna is in a better position to capture all those people because you know pe- when people want to do something, they want to do something. They don't want to fucking <laughs> wait around for three years for you know, weird negotiations of labor law, they don't understand, like they want to do something, they want some action. So anything that's, that's able to act fast is going to be more able to harness that. But you know, I do, I do, you know, and I've had this disagreement with a lot of people in the labor movement, you know, I do think that, uh, you know, a union contract is the gold standard, a union contract is the best thing for workers. I believe the afl can be like a really meaningful institution, which I know a lot of people who've worked at unions are like, forget it, man. <laughs> like they're extremely cynical about the afl Um and, and I understand that, you know, but I'm kind of like, you know, we already built this big institution. Like let's just make it good rather than trying to build it another one right next to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and, and, you know, Hey, things can change in the near future. So I'm, I'm still optimistic for the moment, but you know, at the same time, like, yeah, anybody who, anybody who wants to start a labor group should just start it because like, there's way more workers to go around than unions are able to harness at this point.
0: But that, I think that's great. And, you know, uh, fair enough to what you're saying. I think if people are so committed to the idea that you can reform the Democrats, I will concede that there's a lot more possibility of reforming existing organized (laughs) labor and the AFL-CIO than there is to doing that nonsense. So
1: right. Positive way to look at it. Yeah, exactly.
0: But uh, our guest has been Hamilton Nolan. Check out Get Rid of No Strike Clauses and Stop Begging. It's on In These Times. You can find online. Really great article. And I appreciate the intervention you're trying to make here and hope it goes farther in practice.
1: Thanks for having me, man. You're doing your part.